Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from multiple locations in the San Gabriel Valley of sunny Southern California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead people to Jesus, a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you and opens your heart. And hey, Real Life Church, it's Pastor Jim. It's good to be with you again. Joy, God bless you this week. I am uh, thankful for all the students who got to go to camp last weekend, and we celebrate the fact that two of our folks decided to follow Jesus last weekend at camp. That's always big news for us, and we celebrate that, and we're thankful for that. Uh, and I'm thankful for you as a congregation that you are just such a, a gracious and generous congregation. Thanks to all of you who have already uh, bought tickets to come to our auction March 19th to raise money for the preschool. Thanks to all of you who have donated. We've got some amazing Disney gift baskets that you put together. Somebody donated tickets to see the Lion King at the Pantages. Thank you for uh, being so gracious and, uh, and for taking part in that. Go to reallife.la forward slash auction and buy a ticket if you haven't already. Even just attending the dinner, just taking part, is, it, it, says, it speaks so much support to the teachers and the director and the kids at the preschool and they just like knowing that they have a church that loves them and cares for them. So thanks for taking part in all that. Uh, pray over whether or not God put something on your heart to be generous with. If you have a, a timeshare somewhere that you'd like to donate, or if you want to take people on a boat ride, something that would make a, a phenomenal gift that people would love to bid on at our auction, uh, we appreciate that. And thanks to all of you who have already done that. I, I really just appreciate your generosity and eagerness. Every time I put something out there and say, let's take part in that, you guys are so gracious uh, about doing that. Later on this month, we're going to have a Compassion Sunday where we encourage you to adopt a child in a developing nation. Uh, I've done this for more than 20 years, and many people in our congregation already do this. You, you get a picture of the kid, put on your refrigerator, you write letters back and forth with the kid, and your monthly donation to them helps pay for their school and their clothes, and their food. Uh, they have Christian education. It takes care of their needs. And I've watched, I've literally watched kids over the span of their growing up get out of poverty. Uh, one of the kids I supported for many years ended up going to college, and I found him on Facebook, and he was married and lived in an apartment. He had gotten out of poverty, and Com Compassion, Inter <clears throat> Compassion International is the organization that helped him do that. So uh, stay tuned for that. That's coming up later this month. Um, we're going to dive back into our series of teachings now in the Gospel of Luke, looking at the story of Jesus. And what we see is that Jesus was an uh, uh, amazing surprise to everyone who encountered him. The people who thought they knew God best and, and understood God as a, an angry lawgiver were shocked to find that this God among us was a loving and gracious God who cared especially for the lost and the broken, the sick, uh, and the sinful. And that's who Jesus went to. That's who Jesus loved and cared for. And that's good news for you and I, because if, if you and I have lived broken lives, if we know we don't have it all together, Jesus loves us all the more. He's not looking for ways to shame us. He's not looking for ways to put us uh, on the spot. He's looking for ways to love us and let us know that we're loved. And then we go about our lives living generously in his name. He went town to town healing the sick, casting out demons, and preaching good news. And you and I are called to do the same, to be a blessing to the communities around us everywhere we go. So we're going we're gonna to dive back into our teachings uh, in the Gospel of Luke and look at another very challenging teaching from Jesus uh, about the kind of life that we are called to. Take a minute and pray with me. Jesus, I thank you that you love us. And I thank you that no matter how our lives have gone, 
uh, for the messes that we made and the bad things that have happened to us, for all the times it felt like the world was out of control and there was no one left that we could trust. I thank you for being our rock. I thank you for being our shield. I trust that you have in your hands things that otherwise, from my earthly perspective, look like they're out of control. And so I, I want to give over to you my desire to control the world around me. My desire to take things out of your hands to make it the way I think it should be. I want to surrender everything into your hands so that I can then listen to your call and obey you. Jesus, by the power of your spirit, transform our hearts that we might know you more and love you more and follow you more faithfully. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. All right, we are going to get to a challenging teaching of Jesus today. So open in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. This is a hard one. This one is difficult. You can't help but pause on this one and wonder why Jesus taught it and what it means for me personally. But you can't skip over the difficult teachings of Scripture. If you skip over the difficult ones, you're going to end up with a, a watered-down, lukewarm version of the Christian faith that's not really the faith at all. So when you come to the challenging teachings of Jesus, as much as they might frighten us, we've got to pause and contemplate. We've got to think about them and apply them to our lives. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 16 at verse 19. This is a parable that Jesus taught. Uh, beginning Luke 16, 19, listen to God's word. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple, and purple was an important color. It was part of the temple decor. Everything they did in the temple had purple in it. It was the way uh, the well-dressed people uh, uh, made their clothes because you, meant you had money to dye the clothes, and uh, it was a color of king. So a, a rich man who was dressed in purple is somebody who's well-off, and fine linen, and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, a couple of things here. Notice in this parable, the rich man never gets a name. We know Lazarus' name. And I think that's important because it tells us something about what God values. God longs to lift up the humble, and God will humble those who have exalted themselves. The rich man never gets a name in this story. We don't, we don't have anything, we don't have any identity on him. Just a, a rich man. Secondly, the way this man is living is actually in direct contrast to the explicit teachings of scriptures. Any first century Jewish person would have known this. A, a poor person sitting outside your gate, starving and being uh, uh, licked by animals shows that you are failing to be faithful to the teachings of the scriptures. It's an embarrassment that anybody who calls himself a follower of Jesus would not immediately know how contradictory and hypocritical this is, how much this is an overt rejection of the teaching of the Scriptures. Deuteronomy 10.17 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the foreigner residing among you giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, 
For you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. When there is a stranger at your gates, you are to take them in and treat them as one of your own. The fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments says, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. On the seventh day of the week, you're not supposed to do any work. You or the people who work for you or the stranger who's at your gates. The stranger at your gates is someone that you are to take care of. The person from another country residing among you is someone who you are to treat as a guest of honor. The scriptures, the, whole, the Old Testament scriptures said, if you're a farmer and you go through and you glean the fields and you pick up the wheat and the crops, don't go back and pick up what fell to the ground. Leave that for the poor. Leave that for the, the stranger who walks through and needs food. Leave stuff behind for other people. The prophets of the Hebrew scriptures railed against Israel for ignoring the poor. It is one of the most angry spots in the, the preaching of the prophets. God would not have a people who ignored the widows, the orphans, and the strangers living among them. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 25 about sheep and goats. And he says to them, he says to the sheep, when you saw me without food, without clothing, you fed me and you clothed me come to your eternal reward. And to the goats, he says, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was in prison, you didn't visit me. Away from me, you evildoers. He says, the way you treat the least among you is the way you treat me. Those are the words of Jesus. And then finally, the apostle Paul, as he goes about his ministry work, says that when I, when I finally met with the disciples who traveled with Jesus, the one thing they asked was that I continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. The scriptures from beginning to end paint a picture of a people who are so loving and generous, they do not let the poor lie outside their gates and suffer. So in the opening of this parable, any faithful Jewish person listening to Jesus would know immediately this rich man was not being faithful. Verse 22, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Now, if you don't know this story, Abraham is back in the book of Genesis and he's known as the father of faith. All the Jewish people descend from him. And so they believe themselves to be the chosen people by virtue of their bloodline going back to Abraham. In Jesus' day, the teachers of the law say that we are favored because we are descendants of Abraham. So this man is carried to Abraham's side. It's saying he's carried to, to God's people. He's carried to a place of favor. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, which is, Hades was the Greek word for hell. This was a concept that existed in the Greek world before Jesus came along. But in the, the Greco-Roman conception of the underworld, it was sort of a gloomy, dreary place. Uh, it wasn't a place of fire. It wasn't a place of torment. It was a place of just kind of sadness and boredom. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades where he was in torment. So now this is a new teaching from Jesus. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Now, bear in mind, this is a parable. So you, you can't necessarily take a parable and say that's a literal description of what hell is like. That's not how parables work. 
it does tell us that Jesus is crafting a new image of what happens after judgment that didn't exist in the Greco-Roman world. So, so he does say very clearly, there's a point at which we stand in front of God and give an account of our lives. And those who have not found favor with God are, are in a terrible situation. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, father, Send Lazarus to my family. Notice this guy still sees Lazarus as his errand boy. He's still treating Lazarus like an object. Send Lazarus to take care of me. Send Lazarus to take care of my family. He hasn't, he hasn't figured out yet how wrong he got this. Lazarus was never an object. Verse 28, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Again, Jesus repeatedly says, the scriptures teach clearly enough. You should from the scriptures know who I am, Jesus said. You should from the scriptures know what God expects, Jesus said. He sends them back to the scriptures. He's got Moses and the prophets. He's got the writings of the scriptures. That should be enough. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And that is an amazing moment of foreshadowing because Jesus knows the day that they will come where he dies and then rises again miraculously from the dead. And even those who see someone risen from the dead will still reject him. This is a hard teaching of Jesus. This one's not warm and comforting. This one's a bit scary. Now, there's a beautiful promise contained in this text, but you can't skip over the power of the warning that Jesus gives us. You have to understand that when Jesus teaches a parable like this, it's not intended to manipulate people to believe because manipulated belief is not real belief anyway. It's certainly not an intention uh, intended to manipulate people into being more generous with their money. This isn't a fundraising parable. Jesus doesn't preach this parable and then turn around and says, who wants to make a donation? This is a parable that's meant to stop us in our tracks and make us look around and think, wait a minute, might I be like that rich and comfortable man who doesn't realize what's going on, who doesn't realize where he's going to get end up? How do I make sure that I'm never like that? Um, I had some friends uh, years ago, and uh, they were college students, and they decided they were going to drive from literally from one side of the country to the other. And the way they were going to do it is they were all going to pile in a car. It was four guys in a small car. And they were going to just drive 24 hours a day. And if they had to stop so that one person could go to sleep, somebody else could wake up, they just pull over to the side of the road, change seats, and then keep going. They, they were not going to stop the whole way. 
So they get in the car and they drive and they drive and they drive. I think they were going west coast to east. I believe that was the plan, west coast to east. And as they drove across the country, the time came in the middle of the night where the driver got tired, 2 a.m., 3 a.m., just exhausted. And he pulled off the road and he woke up his buddy and he said, uh, hey, I need to sleep. You drive now. The guy said, okay, uh, I'll do it. So they're in the middle of the country. They've gone halfway. They switched seats. <laughs> the problem was, unbeknownst to the new driver, when the former driver stopped, he started to pull over and, and switched at, at a, an overpass to go to a gas station. And he parked so that the car was pointing back in the opposite direction back towards the West Coast again. It's the middle of the night. There's no sunshine to tell you which way you're going. So the, the, nec the next driver, the new driver, wakes up and he's groggy and, you know, it's just, he's still kind of half asleep. So he gets behind the wheel and doesn't stop to get his bearing straights before, before he starts driving. And he drives for hours in the wrong direction because he doesn't realize the car has gotten turned around. Everything feels absolutely fine. The guys are sleeping in the car. He's driving along. They still got a goal in mind. They're headed to the East Coast. Everything's great until the sun rises. And when the sun rises in his rear view mirror, he suddenly realizes he has driven for hours in the wrong direction. And then they had to have a conversation about who was paying for gas. <laughs> well, it's entirely possible, spiritually, for you and I to find ourselves at the wheel and look around and think, oh, well, I, I should head in this direction. Everybody else seems to be heading in this direction. Everybody around me is not saying anything because they're asleep. I guess I'll just keep going. And we can go for hours in the wrong direction that way. We can go for miles in the wrong direction that way. We can go for years in the wrong direction. And there are signs along the way. But if you're blurry-eyed and a little tired, you might miss the signs. When Jesus tells parables like this, there are warning signs. This is the flashing red light at the railroad track. Don't go this way. This is the Surgeon General's warning on the side of a pack of cigarettes. This will hurt you. Parables like this are meant to shock us, to make us look around and consider where we've come from and where we're going, and to reorient ourselves in terms of the rising sun in terms of the risen sun? Is it possible that I've been going in the wrong direction for a long time because no one around me stopped me? Everybody was asleep and just let me keep going. But is it, is it possible that I, I better give pause and reconsider which way I need to go? There come moments in our lives where we have to make a 180 degree turn because the destination that we're headed to, towards is going to be terrible. The rich man in this parable never, never saw that sign. Jesus says there were warnings along the way. 
You had Moses. You had the prophets. You had the scriptures that taught you how you are to treat the poor among you, how you're to treat the stranger outside your gate who's starving. You had signs to look at. But he was inundated with wealth. He felt comfortable, probably. Safe, probably. He may have even had a theology to it. I am blessed, so I must be doing this right. God must be on my side. There was a sign at his gate that said, you're headed in the wrong direction. There was a sign in his scriptures that said, you're headed in the wrong direction. But most likely, the people around him, the people who he had hired, maybe his family, they were all enjoying the wealth and comfort as well. And nobody said anything. This kind of parable is meant to wake us up, to stop us from sleeping through the explicit teachings of the Scriptures. The Bible is abundantly clear that we are to care for the poor. We are to do it generously and eagerly. We are to do it from our own resources. We are to seek out people in need, to seek to love them and to bless them. Give to anyone who has need, Jesus says. You and I may well now be on a dark freeway, surrounded by people who are sleeping comfortably. And it's not until Jesus tells a parable like this that we are shocked at the rising sun. And it causes us to stop and reorient ourselves. We reorient ourselves by returning to the explicit teachings of the Scriptures and saying, even if all the world around me is headed in one direction, if the Scriptures say to go the other way, I will go the other way. And I'm afraid that the American church has missed it on the poor. Things like our pantry, where we, we give out groceries to hundreds of people every month, that for decades, and maybe longer, has been seen as a peripheral and secondary ministry of the church that we do after we're done with all of our Bible studies and evangelizing. The scriptures are clear. People who live like this rich man have missed the calling of God. 400 years ago, when Martin Luther, uh, 500 years ago now, when Martin Luther read the scriptures, he realized the entire church was headed in wrong directions. The, the Catholic church, which was the primary expression of Christianity in the world 500 years ago, was charging people money so that they could build bigger churches. And they were telling people, if you give us your money, we will get your deceased relatives out of hell. And Martin Luther read the Bible and said, that's not in there. Under no circumstances is that anywhere in the teachings of the Scriptures. That is contrary to the teachings of the Scriptures. And far from being a tool for the manipulation of financial gain, the, the Bible is meant to protect us from religious manipulation. The better we know the Scriptures, the more likely we are going to be able to resist those who teach them falsely. And so as much as teachings like this one are frightening to read, parables like this one are frightening to read, we don't want to miss them. We don't want to skip over them. We don't want to avoid them or ignore them because somebody in the congregation might not want to hear it. These are the kinds of Scriptures that protect us from going miles in the wrong direction while everybody around us is just asleep. If, if we ignore them, 
What will happen to us is exactly what happens to the rich man in the parable. The day will come where life is over. And our stories are complete. There is no reincarnation. Don't entertain that nonsense. You get one go and this is it. And after this life, you stand in front of God at the seat of judgment. And you give an account of your life. On that day, you definitely don't want to say, I heard about you and I ignored you. That is a dangerous and stupid way to live life. You definitely don't want to say, I lived a pretty good life. I'm a pretty good person. That should have been fine. The Apostle Paul will say that even his life of radical generosity and sacrifice and ministry and mission work is like dirty rags next to the goodness of God. I'm not going to stand in front of God and say, I was a pastor. I you know, had a pantry. Look at what a good guy I was. That would be deadly. On that day, standing in front of God, what I want to say is Jesus died for me. And that's it. The punishment that I really do deserve, he took for me. And I trust in that. I'm not going to bank on anything else. And having accepted that, receiving that grace, I'm now going to live for Jesus. I'm going to live a life that shows how thankful I am for what he's given me. I'm going to live a life that shows how much I believe he has taken care of all that I need. The day is going to come where you and I, like the rich man and like Lazarus, have to give an account of our lives. And if we get it wrong, if we just trust that uh, the world is kind of doing things the way we're doing them, so we probably headed in the right direction. If we calculate wrong, it can, it can go poorly for us. Back in 1999, the United States launched a Mars Climate Orbiter to evaluate the status, status of the Martian atmosphere. We were planning on moving there decades ago. The orbiter approached the Martian atmosphere at the wrong calculation, too low, and it entered the Martian atmosphere and burned up. $125 million device, which that was in 1999. It's, that's more like a $250 million device today burned up because the calculations were wrong. The reason the calculations were wrong was because the designers of the, the, uh, the device used the American, uh, the American measuring system, and NASA entered the coordinates using the metric system. The, the device was using one system of measurement, and NASA was entering numbers, presuming it was another system of measurement. You know, like, instead of a 1,000... NASA typed in a thousand thinking it was a thousand meters and the device heard a thousand yards, which is not the same thing. I think, I don't know, I'm not European. I think they're different. They're not the same. And because the device was using a different kind of calculation than the one that NASA entered, a different measuring system than the one that NASA entered, the device entered the Martian atmosphere and burned up and was lost. Well, that's exactly what you and I can do. We can live our lives by the measurement system of the world, which is usually measured in dollars. And we can measure our success and our accomplishment and our blessings in the measurements of the world. And when we stand in front of God, we are not going to be measured by the standards of the world. We're going to be measured by whether or not we took a stand on Jesus Christ and then lived a life of love, lived in thanksgiving and responsiveness to him. And those who continue to live by the standards of the world say, I ignored God, but I was a pretty good person. They're headed towards a fiery conclusion. It's a frightening parable. 
but there's a deep promise contained within it. The promise is this, three things. First of all, we have the power right now to invite Jesus into our lives and erase all of our debts. If you pray in your heart right now, Jesus, I believe that you died for me and I accept you and I want to follow you. All debts are wiped away. All guilt is wiped away. Every failure, even the failures to care for the poor, all failure is wiped away at the cross. Secondly, we're promised grace. We are not judged by our good works. And this parable is not meant to set us up to believe that you have to live a really, really, really good life or you're going to hell. That's not Christian theology. The, the promise of Christian theology is that when you believe Jesus died for you, you're forgiven. You are absolutely innocent, and it's all a gift of grace. We didn't earn it, and we can't repay it. But then thirdly, here's the promise. We get to live lives of freedom, freedom from greed and freedom from anxiety that we won't have enough. We get to live with a trust that God will provide for us and take care of us. That God knows exactly what we need and loves us deeply. He wants us to be happy. And that happiness that we are chasing after, he wants to give it to us. You can't listen to the standards of the world that said you'll only be happy when you get really rich and buy lots of stuff. They're wrong and that's not what God wants for you. It's not because he doesn't want you to be happy. It's because he knows where happiness comes from. He wants us to pause when we read frightening teachings like this and look at where we've come from and look at where we're going and make sure that we're on track for the right destination. Because we who receive Jesus and embrace the freedom of his grace and live lives of love and thanksgiving are headed towards an eternity with more of the same. It's such a mistake to go to Jesus and say, well, I want to be forgiven, but then I'm going to keep living life the way I've been living it because I'd rather do that than follow you. It'd be like somebody who uh, is addicted to drugs and it's destroying their body. So they go to a rehab clinic so that their minds and their bodies will get clean so that they can go back and do more drugs. I really like doing drugs a whole lot. And so I need to go get cleaned up so my body will last longer so I can do more drugs. What a disaster. But people who say, I want to go to Jesus to get forgiven, and then I want to continue to live an absolutely sinful, destructive life and see how much I get away with, are doing the same thing. I am set free to head towards an eternity that's beautiful, and, and it's going to creep its way back into my life now. So I start living a life of grace and love and generosity and compassion, not because I'm earning anything, but because it's what I'm made for. It's where happiness comes from. Teachings like this about hell are, are frightening, but they, they actually only make good sense. I, I like what C.S. Lewis said about teachings about hell. He wrote this. He says, Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever. There are a good many things that would not be worth bothering about if I were only going to live for 70 years, but which I had better bother about very seriously if I'm going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse. So gradually that increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable, but it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct 
technical term for what it would be. So this is the beautiful promise that comes with hard teachings like this. If we do accept God's grace, if we do accept his death for us on the cross, if we do reorient ourselves in terms of the risen son, we face an eternity of goodness and truth and love. And we begin to live into that now. That, that kingdom of heaven that lies off in the future works its way into my heart and begins to shape my life now into a life of freedom and grace and love and happiness. Jesus only teaches parables like this because he loves us. He wants you to live a, a beautiful life now and on into eternity. So let's continue to chase after him. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you for the hard teachings as well. Thank you for the ones that make us stop and maybe frighten us awake and reconsider where we come from and where we're going. Jesus, we want to live life for you. Not just because it's some kind of exchange for a reward, but because you are the source of all goodness and love and truth and happiness. So Jesus, we invite you in now. We don't want to end up like this, this guy in the parable. We believe that you died for us. We receive you as our Lord and Savior. Forgive us and make us free. Free us from greed for too much and anxiety that we won't have enough. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. I'll see you again soon. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Facebook or Instagram at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.